Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. As of this taping, the COVID pandemic has killed more than 613,000 Americans and about 4.2 million worldwide. The rampant spread of the Delta variant of uh, COVID is driving vaccination mandates by employers uh, as uh, entertainment venues, bars, and other establishments demand vaccine uh, certificates. Uh, This as air travel uh, rebounds to a degree, as we saw and discussed last week. Most of the leading defense and aerospace companies uh, across the world reported second quarter earnings uh, this week to include Airbus, Babcock, BAE Systems, Boeing that posted its first profit in two years, General Dynamics, Leonardo, Lockheed Martin, MTU, Northrop Grumman, Raytheon Technologies, Safran, and Textron. We'll be talking about all of that. Joining us to discuss this last week on World Markets are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch in our Chatham, New Jersey Bureau, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafi of the Teal Group Consultancy now back in uh, the Danish capital, Copenhagen. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks so much, Vago. Great to be here, Vago. And Copenhagen's tomorrow. We're in the second city today, Aarhus. Ah, I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry. I'd, I'd gotten gotten your uh, uh, travel uh, itinerary uh, a, bit, a bit wrong. So thanks very much uh, for the for the correction, and also gives our audience some some place to look up because for many people it it pretty much starts and ends with Copenhagen, which is unfortunate because it's a, a beautiful country. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical system sponsors our coverage of strategy. General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage. L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all domain command and control. And Huntington Ingalls Industries is sponsoring our coverage of the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show that begins uh, tomorrow, uh, Monday, and runs through Wednesday. Ron, Talk to us. Uh, it's been earnings, earnings, earnings galore. Uh, let, let's break this up into two groups because we have so many companies to cover uh, that we'll barely get through them in the time that we have. Let's start on the commercial aerospace side of it. Airbus reported, Boeing reported, as well as uh, engine makers, MTU and, and Safran, uh, Raytheon Technologies, obviously the repository of United Technologies, as well as Collins reported, um, and you know Leonardo, uh, of course, as well. And then uh, General Dynamics, we'll have an opportunity also to talk about the business jet market next, but start us off on commercial, where we were, investor sentiments, your reactions to uh, what the companies had to say. Yeah. So, so on the commercial side, just a, a couple comments. I mean, if you just stand back and look at the, the broader market, the S&P was down a smidge on the week, just a, maybe 35 basis points. So less than half a percent, it was down on the week. Um, you know, the, the, the champion was uh, in, in euros, uh, Airbus. Airbus was up almost 4%, just a bit under that. Then Boeing was up a two, two and change. Raytheon Technologies up one and change. Um, so, so what was going on there? Um, and, and I think, if, and, and, and I don't want to take uh, any of the wind out of, of Sasha's sales on, on Airbus, but if you compare and contrast Boeing to Airbus, the Airbus numbers were outstanding, right? So Boeing did have its first profit but Airbus had a really outstanding profit. Um, that, that being said, a, a lot of folks are looking at a lot of different things. So um, 
Raytheon shared, you know, some interesting observations on what they're seeing. So in their, their OE business, um, their uh, Rockwell Collins or Collins Aerospace business was up about 8% and Pratt & Whitney was up about 30%. Aftermarket was up about 24% at Collins. Uh, their aftermarket business at Pratt & Whitney was up about 42%. But if you compare it, that was year on year, if you compare it to 2019, their OE business was still down in, in the high 40s and their aftermarket was still down in the mid 30s, right? So year on year, the recovery looks good because last year got crushed, but still compared to 2019, it's you know a, a slow recovery still. Um, uh, that being said, Raytheon reported you know strong numbers and, and you see that kind of reflected in the stock because the stock has performed you know broadly well into the quarter. When you look at um, Boeing's numbers, Boeing reported a good quarter, like you said, first profitable quarter in, uh, I guess, almost two years. There was a lot of interesting things. I mean, there's a lot of things that kind of came together in the quarter for them. When you look at the, the timing of some, some payments, you know, they took a bunch of orders in the quarter, so they had some pre-delivery payments. Um, they slowed the rate of uh, 787 production, so they were producing fewer airplanes. So when you look at the balance between what happened in working capital, their production rates on wide bodies, their cash loss um, was less than what people were thinking. I think the market was thinking that you'd see a cash loss in the quarters in the billions and their cash loss was in the hundreds of millions, right? So from a cash loss perspective, the quarter went well. However, it kind of reverses in the second half of the year. Just you know, a lot of the one-time stuff that happened in the first quarter doesn't happen or in the second quarter, excuse me, doesn't happen again in the second half, right? So um, some of the goodness that we saw in the quarter was very quarter specific. But that being said, it all came together for next quarter. Um, so yeah, that's what I've got on commercial. Um, Sash, uh, give us uh, your sense, right? I mean, it was a big week for Airbus, for Safran, uh, Babcock, but we'll get to that uh, in a moment. But certainly feel free to discuss the commercial elements of the company. Uh, walk us through where you think uh, we are, what it all means, and how you think the future uh, gets uh, affected as we're still not done with this pandemic. And, you know, we've we've talked about the importance of getting vaccinations. Obviously, I mean, Europe now is ahead of the United States. I mean, we've sort of plateaued at 50%. Uh, vaccination mandates, I think, are going to make a difference. The exclusion of the unvaccinated uh, from being able to go to bars and restaurants, I think, is going to have an impact. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see, you know, obviously, there's going to be legal suits that, that come of that. Um, you know, walk, walk us through where we are and where you think we're going. This was Airbus's week. Um, uh, put it in perspective, this was the strongest Q2 that Airbus has ever had in its existence. Um, it was an absolute blowout set of numbers. But probably what was even more important than that was that Airbus management uh, fundamentally um, changed their tone, their view. They are basically saying now the pandemic, as far as, well, certainly their civil aircraft deliveries are concerned, is over. And it's now all about the ramp again. So one quarter ago, they were totally subscribing to your view that got to get lots of jabs, uh, you know, got to get people vaccinated, got to get people flying again. Um, there's a huge amount of risk in the civil aviation market. And that just went out of the window with this set of results. Um, and that is remarkable because Airbus management are incredibly careful. They are hyper-cautious about doing 
and saying really stupid things. They just don't do it very often. Um, you know, Guillaume Forey is a, a, a forensic engineer, uh, and I use both of those terms as, as terms of praise, and, you know, in, in terms of how do you manage, uh, you know, a leading company in a downturn like this. Um, but, you know, they're now saying it's about the upturn. It's not about the pandemic anymore. And what was fascinating was they they were said repeatedly, and we have got the not only the backlog, but we have got the visibility into the backlog and the airlines that comprise that backlog that make us, Airbus, confident that these airlines want their aircraft. And here's why. It actually comes back to what Ron said. It's about pre-delivery payments. They watch every single dollar that comes in as a pre-delivery payment for an A220, 320, 330, 350. And they don't just look at the number, but they look at precisely when it arrived. And they said they have never seen such prompt payment of pre-delivery payments, which means that an airline that has an aircraft on order for delivery in six months' time is paying on the dot because they want that aircraft. It's fascinating. Um, you know, they've just got better visibility into airline health at the moment than, than we have. So, um, you know, it was a, it was a, a remarkably bullish. Uh, I mean, the, the, the management were not bullish themselves, but the, the content and the way they, del- uh, you know, the, the way that they sort of demonstrated it was an astonishingly bullish content, particularly given the caution of a quarter ago. The other big theme, though, that I think it's really important to highlight was that there is a major spat going on between Airbus and its suppliers, and particularly the engine companies. Uh, So we had Safran, and Safran basically said, the civil aircraft ramp up for Airbus is not sustainable above 60 aircraft a month, which is where Airbus hopes to get by uh, early 2024. Um, so they don't believe that Airbus can even get to the rate 64 and sustain it, which is the level that Airbus is, is uh, forecasting for end 24, let alone the 75 aircraft a month that Airbus is talking about for some time uh, at the end of 2025. Safran is just pushing that. And we have to assume that if they're pushing that, so is General Electric, because that those two companies are tied at the hip in terms of narrow body engine production with the, uh, the CFM leap. MTU, uh, who are pretty similarly uh, tied to Pratt & Whitney on the geared turbofan, they were a bit more emollient, but they just said, look, we can get the geared turbofan to rate 63, 64, i.e. the previous high for Airbus, but not rate 75. So you've got the engine companies saying we can get to the previous high, but even that, in terms of Safran, we don't feel terribly confident about, but rate 75, that's for the birds. And Airbus management, this was the most wonderful, I mean, just fascinating, um, you know, uh, quote coming out of the thing. Uh, Guillaume Forage just said, we're really disappointed that some partners are challenging the rates. They challenged the uh, 40 a month a year ago, and they're now challenging the rate increases as well. And the implication there is the engine companies and the big aerostructures companies were just plain wrong about Airbus's very rapid decision to cut rates back in April of 2020. And they're, you know, they're wrong now. We Airbus are right. That's, you know, it's astonishing to, to take on your suppliers, you know, quite so aggressively. So it was Airbus this week. Uh, the company is performing in financially astonishingly at the moment. Um, the issues that Ron talked about with pre-delivery payments are, are you know, really interesting from the point of view of, of an analyst. But really, it's this uh, de- debate, disagreement between Airbus on the one hand and the engine companies and 
probably the aerostructures guys on the other that's going to be the the absolutely fascinating uh thing to follow as we go through the rest of this year and into 22 um following business jets uh thank, thanks for that assessment and and the the uh the uh, clinical assessment of uh, Guillaume uh, as well uh, as uh, sort of the, the consummate uh, engineer uh, chief executive, uh, which, um, you know, obvi- obviously is a very prized uh, attribute for what is the repository of, of, of not just European, but of French uh, commercial air, air, aerospace uh, eng- uh, engineering excellence. Um, Richard, give us give us your sense on 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 where we are, what we're going, what you make of these uh, numbers in a macro sense, right? I mean, you you look at not just Boeing and Airbus, uh, but you know all of the global supply chain challenges. I think Sash makes a great point. Uh, you know, sort of the conservatism of the engine makers sort of creeping up, uh, creeping into this this discussion. You know, what what's what jumped out at you looking across the entire group, right? Because um, almost all the companies that reported has a piece or, or something to say or something to contribute, right, Leonardo? We were talking before we get started about the 609. So if you want to get that, uh, the, the small tilt rotor, you want to address that, feel free to feel free to do so. But sort of give us your sense across the board. Yeah, uh, you know, first of all, uh, Stash, of course, is exactly right to identify that fascinating moment between Saffron and Airbus. I mean, from Saffron's standpoint, the frustration is understandable because on the one hand, they're being asked to bear all of the risks associated with the ramp and, you know, tooling up for it. That really is heavily on them. Uh, and while simultaneously watching what they perceive of as overproduction, forcing out older, more profitable engines and uh, other components from the fleet mix, that's got to hurt, especially since there's any number of engines and, and jets coming up on you know, major checks that will not be going through a major check. They'll simply be retired. And that really hurts, especially since the latest generation of engines have, you know, fantastic, um, well, aftermarket uh, capabilities. You know, basically, uh, there's an awful lot more that's not limited by time, but rather limited by contingency and whatever else. Predictive diagnostics helping out quite a lot. So there's a lot of engines that are staying on the wing, not being taken to shops and not bringing in revenue. So I understand their frustration. On the other hand, they're also frustrated by the structural realities of the business because not only is traffic coming back and you know obviously threatening to come back even faster, but you also have that wonderful bifurcation that we saw back in 2008 between the cost of capital and the cost of fuel, my favorite indicator in the business. You had... Uh, Brent crude reached $75 and above, I believe, this week. That coupled with cheap and cheerful and plentiful capital means you've got a, that, that, that perfect Goldilocks ratio for new aircraft production, where airlines have every reason in the world to want to refleet and all the cheap cash with which to refleet. So what can Saffron do in the face of that reality? It's hard. Now, of course, for everybody else in the business, uh, supply, I mean, everyone else cut costs mercilessly, cut headcount mercilessly. All of a sudden, you have an uptick. Things are going to look great. And they did this week. Uh, and that's, that's true for almost all of the supply base, uh, aside from maybe a bit of the interiors work. But, you know, you also have this sort of strange imbalance with Airbus, is, uh, as Ron saying, reaching record profits, doing just fantastically well. And Boeing 
basically saying, hooray, we didn't lose money. We didn't even take a hit with the KC-46 as we do in just about every quarter. So there's almost this weird mismatch or contrast in expectation management. You know, one side reaching new record highs and the other one just coasting, you know, (laughs) and, and, and being expected to be rewarded for well, my goodness, we're, the ship is no longer taking on massive uh, drafts of water. So hooray! Right. So it's it's a it's a strange mismatch there. Um, it, uh, interesting uh, analogy, but uh, but your your point point is well taken, Ron. Uh, do you want to build on this as you uh, pave into the business jet discussion and a and a very very bullish general dynamics on Gulfstream? Yeah, sure. That's, I mean, that's they, now the world's right. That's right now the world's right number three airplane maker. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, by dollar value. Yeah, um, definitely. Um, yeah, so I think Richard hit the nail on the head. I mean, if you really compare and contrast Boeing and Airbus uh, in the quarter, you know, Airbus had this, you know, kind of mind-blowingly good quarter. Um, you have margins, I think, Sasha, if I was right, if I'm right, about 16%, 16.3 or something like that, if memory serves. And and, yeah. and Boeing commercial was four. Okay, that's four times the margin. Right, they both lived through the same pandemic, and and it comes back to I think a point we've made in the past. You know, if you went into the pandemic strong, you came out stronger. If you went in weak, you came out weaker. Um, and that's you're just seeing it in the numbers right now, and hands down. Um, you know, the, the companies that went in strong, Raytheon Technologies had an outstanding quarter, but because you know they had uh, the the United Technologies portfolio was buoyed by the you know Raytheon defense business and the stability that that brought to them and you're, and you're seeing that that now and they echoed what you know sash said that mtu said you know that they could get to i think 63 they're capitalized for 63 uh, uh, a month on gtfs uh, they've stressed it to 65 uh, but if they were to go to something like in the 70s they'd have to make some investments and they that, that would be a point of discussion right in the supply chain you know you, you just mentioned something interesting so before we get to business jets how long does it take your your point about the Boeing recovery, right? I mean, you know, before we all start singing, we're in the money, there's going to be a longer range impact, right? So talk to us about what the longer range impact on Boeing is, because some of these challenges uh, still remain. You were quoted in a Washington Post story by Dalvin Brown and Christian uh, Davenport, you know, that you know, all eyes are whether or not the Boeing uh, spacecraft uh, is going to have a successful uh, launch, uh, right? I mean, all eyes are on the Starliner. The failure of Starliner paved the way for SpaceX to sort of leap ahead. So, I mean, there and and you, we've discussed on this program the engineering, um, you know, challenges, um, um, you know, manpower uh, shortfalls or human capital shortfalls. How long does it take for Boeing to recover from all this? Well, it's it's a generational thing, right? And that was a question I actually asked on the earnings call. Um, you know, I, I asked um, uh, Dave Calhoun, uh, his, you know, his thoughts on any weakness in their engineering ranks with some of the uh, older, more experienced staff retiring and what they're doing to attract young people. Um, and you know, he he offered his thoughts on that. Um, you know, I didn't think it was a particularly strong answer, but that's you know, you know here nor there. That's kind of kind of is what it is, but. Um, when the experience, when that experience leaves, it's, it's hard to fill those shoes because a lot of what they know isn't written in notebooks. It's not just procedural. Um, a lot of it's experience. you know, the devil ultimately is in the details of a lot of this stuff. So, 
right? I mean, I think it's it's an it's an open question. It's a broad question. Uh, we worry um, meaningfully about the brain drain, if you will. Um, you know, in it, we used to in the industry, but more broadly at some of the uh, more legacy players and at Boeing more specifically. Uh, if you're a young engineer uh, getting out of school, um, do you want to go work on the 737 or would you rather go work for an eVTOL startup or for a space company or for a company doing new tech and propulsion? Or So I, you know, I think the, you know, the old line companies have to work really hard to get the best talent because a lot of the best talent is willing to sleep in the parking lot at SpaceX. Um, so it's, you know, it's, I think it's a, you know, it's a, it's a tricky time to get that talent. Um, I might add, um, you know, Northrop Grumman in the past has you know, talked to us at length about how they do it. And I think it was pretty impressive and very thoughtful. Um, and it's something that I think uh, many of the, the companies, you know, the, the, the old guard, if you will, in A&D have to really think about because now they're not just losing talent to, you know, the, the, the Amazons of the world or whatever, just, you know, Silicon Valley. But now you have kind of like a, your own, you know, you know, when you call it startup community of very innovative companies say what you will about those companies, but to a young engineer who's willing to take a lot of risk, it's probably a very attractive place to go. And what was Dave's answer to you? You know, you said that you were somewhat unsatisfied by the answer. What was his answer? It, it was, you know, kind of largely that, hey, you know, we're, we're, we're working on bringing, you know, folks in and, you know, we're cognizant of it. And, you know, we've got a, got a program where, you know, you, you know I, I Zoom them um, personally, uh, that kind of thing. And um, it just sort of missed the point of, you know, it's, it's, you, you, how do you excite them to come to the company? Truly, how do you excite a young engineer to go work on an airframe that started out in, you know, kind of the mid to late 60s versus working on an airframe that was born maybe quite literally two weeks ago, right? So it's, it, they didn't, he didn't address that question. And Ron, I'm sorry, you were in Dalvin and Christian's uh, story on the Starliner. What what are the repercussions for Boeing if they have another problem with that launch? Well, it's I mean it's it's the second time, right? So the expectation is everything will go as planned. If it doesn't, it really begs the question, why? And you know, why? What's wrong in the engineering organization where even after the second try, they couldn't get it right? And that just keeps driving down the same point. Uh, I've made it, Richard's made it. Um, when you look at, at Boeing, is there a brain drain either made by you know, management decisions or just who knows what in the engineering ranks where they, just, they need more staff? Um, they need more intellectual horsepower in the engineering ranks to get everything to, to work out. Um, I, I should uh, give uh, each of you a quick bite uh, at this apple, and then I want to get to business jets, and then I want to get to the defense side of the business because I'm cognizant the clock is ticking. Sash, anything to briefly add? And then Richard, uh, on this point about, okay, we're in the money, but how long, before, you know, as, as Ron said, right, generational, they still face challenges. They're going to have to develop a new airplane, invest in product lines, et cetera. And then, you know, continue to grapple with challenges on some of their core products, whether it's you know, 787 or 777X. I mean, I, I think the fascinating you know, comments coming out of Airbus, but actually this was a f- refrain across a lot of the European stocks is this time a year ago, they were focused just on cutting. They were, uh, you know, cut costs, cut manpower, cut sites if you can. You know, don't spend a, um, a euro cent more than you have to because 
they're looking into the abyss now they've stopped all of that uh they're starting you know they the they're starting to recruit again uh and you know in terms of airbus they've got so much cash they're starting to develop new products so they launched the a350 freighter this week um that's going to give the the triple seven a run for its money all right um and having new programs on the go provided they go okay is actually one of the best ways to keep uh, engineers happy and you know to to keep your engineers frankly you know if they uh, and uh, i would guess that airbus is promising its engineers you know after the a350 freighter there's going to be a uh, an a320 stretch and you know we've got a new new generation narrow body after that there's there's you know r&d spending is not the problem for airbus at the moment they can afford it and uh right 350 freighter uh, is out as a consequence, right? I mean, they're looking at that strategic investment and how to expand that base, right? Norm- normally the last step of an airliner's life, but they're looking at that as an interesting market. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're about a 10 years into the A350's life and uh, they can now afford to, I mean, it's going to be a big program. It's going to be a 3 billion euro program, I reckon. Uh, that's our, our estimate, but uh, it's worth doing because it bulks out 350 production. Uh, it's gives them access to a market they've never been strong in. And you know what? Put some pressure on Boeing as well. This is really aggressive. Richard? The contrast between uh, what Sasha said and, and what Boeing is doing couldn't be any more profound. I mean, a little bit of history. You know, back in the early 90s, the industry entered a nasty cyclical downturn. Boeing launched the 777, a world-beating jet. Uh, 2003, uh, in the depths of the post-2001 downturn, Boeing launched the 787, despite the financial challenges, a world-beating jet. Fantastic. Here we are in the midst of a, well, a, gener- a, 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 a cyclical downturn that's deeply unpleasant. And Boeing is, uh, if I understand, uh, Ron, um, Zoom calling with potential new hires in the engineering department. Uh, yeah, no. It, it, you don't bring in new talent by Zoom calling with them. Rather, you launch exciting new programs, and of course, you appoint engineers and technical people to important executive positions. And this just isn't happening at Boeing. Right now, the message from Boeing is, we're not going to lose money. We're saved. We've come out of this worst challenge. And by the way, we're perfectly fine with a 40% or even 35% market share, inferior profitability, but you know, high barrier entry, and who's going to really buy a Chinese jet? So we're fine. The contrast could not be more stark. Business shuts. Ron, start us off. Yeah, so it was a a very upbeat quarter for for business aviation across the space. So of the companies we follow, the two that reported this week that have exposure to business aviation were General Dynamics and Textron. Um, And I think the surprise out of both of them, I mean, the expectations were, were high on the BizJet market writ large. Um, expectations were particularly high for Textron Aviation um, for good reason, and, and but they were high. Um, Golfstream really did quite well. Um, you know, Golfstream's book to bill was uh, two in the quarter, um, which is very strong, particularly for a second quarter. Um, business jet activity tends to be second half of the year weighted. Uh, and from the indications that um, they communicated on the call, it seems like that, that Momentum is continuing into the to the second half of the year. So, uh, I would say broadly, the you know the, the the debate on the street is you know how how sticky is this, right? I mean, things are 
really good now? Are we in for a multi-year kind of hockey stick upturn? Does this mute out over time? So now it's, you know, it, the debate isn't, are we in an upturn? Clearly we're in an upturn. Now it's sort of the tone and tenor of the upturn. Is this going to be, you know, kind of, kind of a real steep hockey stick? Is it going to be kind of more muted? And, you know, I think the jury's still a little bit out on that. The trick is with the business market is it tends to go to the beat of its own drum, right? I mean, it goes up for a while and can be, you know, super robust and then, you know, you know, caused by outside causes, or maybe not, you know, it was the financial crisis that kind of really hurt the industry last time. So clearly an outside cause, but it, it can kind of fall flat and then stay down for much longer than people thought. So the, the recovery post-financial crisis really, 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 really limped along. Um, but we've gotten to a point now where a lot of the used inventory has been absorbed. The used inventory out there that's not absorbed or, you know, kind of, you know, back in service is really, really old because a lot of business jets don't get retired. They just kind of get put out the pasture and fly kind of what do you call it, just sort of discounted missions. Um, so the, the, you know, the business jet fleet, the size of that fleet is a little bit misleading because a lot of those aircraft don't get a lot of usage. Um, so, you know, of the fleet that would get used a lot, it's really absorbed. There's not a lot of used aircraft on the market. Um, so it really does look like um, the landscape for business aviation currently and for the next while looks pretty darn strong. Uh, Sash and Richard? Yeah, we, we had good re- good results uh, from the Falcon side of Dassault the other right. week and Gulfstream just, just capped that. Richard? Right, from my standpoint, it was a fascinating, you know, almost making the leap uh, moment because you've got, you know, about eight, macro indicators for the business jet market, uh, macro and micro indicators, all of them are great, you know, whether it's uh, the big stuff like corporate profits or equities markets or the small stuff like percent of fleet available for sale and pricing and whatever else, all are fantastic. And so it's, yeah, and utilization, wow, is it, it's, it's just setting records in, in some ways, 91K and 135 charter and, uh, and fractional um, you know, raising the question of how sticky it is, but right now everything is fantastic. So you've got these predictably great results that come out from Textron and Gulfstream, um, but then they hold the line at rates. <laughs> right. uh, that was a fascinating moment. Like, you know, they're being super conservative, which I understand given the, as Ron said, the sort of, you know, the, the, well, the lost decade we just saw where it always seemed like we were on the cusp of an upturn and never quite happened so i understand the the caution uh but boy how much better do things have to get in order to, for there to be some kind of upward pressure on production rates and i, I guess we'll see uh, i have to ask you about the 609 uh obviously it was bell uh, augusta smaller version uh, a commercial version of uh at the time it was the v22 and the 609 there were going to be military applications for it as well united arab emirates has uh, looked at it for some time and then bell sold it to uh augusta westland and uh obviously Augusta Westland is really Leonardo, so now it's a Leonardo product, full disclosure. Uh, Bell is the sponsor of our podcast, uh, and I have to say I've long time been a, a tilt rotor uh, advocate and fan. Anybody who's looked at my writings all the way to the early 1990s uh, can can see that. Uh, what was the 609 news uh, that you thought was interesting, Richard? And then, uh, uh, you know, just bring you guys into it very, very briefly before we have to jump to the defense side of the conversation, but wanted to give you a second to address that. 
Oh, I thought it was just interesting that they talked about it. Frankly, it had been a very long time since it was mentioned. And here they're saying, oh, yeah, working on the, you know, the first production aircraft is going to happen, you know, late this year. And, uh, you know, that implies that, well, maybe next year will be the year they'd enter service. And, you know, it, it had a certain Saturday Night Live Generalissimo Francisco 609 is uh, still, you know, fighting to remain dead, you know, feeling before this. But uh, it's alive. And, you know, I, I think everyone's a little bit intrigued by the possibility of an entering service. So it was just really good to see some kind of confidence come out of the company uh, with regard to this product and, uh, and well, raising the prospect of entering service and entering serial production next year. I have never understood 609. I think it's a black hole for funds that Leonardo cannot afford. And its target market is just staggeringly small. You know, a small number of, of billionaires and the United Arab Emirates. The United Arab Emirates is one of the toughest and arguably, I mean, it's hyper demanding, but they're also can be incredibly unreasonable as a defense customer. I would not want to have a product where they were, you know, where I was totally dependent on them at this stage, uh, when the product has clearly not got traction with anybody else. Uh, effectively, you're getting a small helicopter that flies quite fast for a bit, but, um, you know, you're compromising almost everything you do on that tilt rotor. So I, I'm, you know, I think you, you and I just have to agree to disagree. In, in general, it's better done over a drink. <laughs> uh, un, un, under, understood. Um, all right, let's go to the defense side of the equation. Ron, uh, start us off. Obviously, we've got uh, Lockheed uh, reporting Babcock, uh, and it was interesting that the company's $2 billion problem, Sash, was had nothing to do with the Type 31, uh, which is, which is uh, going on crackingly. Uh, Ron, start us off on the defense group. Uh, what were uh, the takeaways? Because obviously, it's a great time to be a defense contractor, $25 billion uh, plus up, even if the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, is is raising a warning, which I suspect was completely unregistered on Wall Street, right? His his statement that we lost a major war game uh, in October. U.S. forces uh, took a drubbing in a, a major war game in October, uh, trying to defend uh, Taiwan against the Chinese attack. And the Pentagon, as a consequence, apparently is reconsidering everything about the how uh, about its war fighting uh, approaches as well as its capabilities. Walk us through in the group what were sort of the key things that you saw across the board. Yeah, that, that didn't really come up much this week because everybody was buried in earnings through the week, right? It was just a, a right. crazy busy week. And I think in this this week alone, you had more companies report uh, in the S&P 500 and I think globally than any other week of the year, right? So it's just an insane earnings week for everybody involved. That being said, I think the knee-jerk response of the war game would be, oh, that doesn't mean they're going to spend less. Maybe they spend it differently. Maybe they spend more, but they don't spend less. Um, on the week, it was interesting. I would say a couple of things were surprising. You know, Lockheed started out the earnings among the big defense primes with a uh, $225 million charge on a fixed-priced classified development program in aeronautics. Um, that Investors didn't love that. That was kind of our, out of character from the Lockheed that we all sort of know from the last decade. Uh, and then there was a lot of, you know, questioning from investors. Was that NGAD? Did they bid NGAD at a loss? Or, you know, what's going on there? And then you, know, you just you kind of stand back. And it's interesting that now we have both Boeing and Lockheed who have bid development programs as fixed price development programs, and they're unprofitable, and they've both taken charges on. Um, yeah, Boeing actually more so than Lockheed. But, but you know, be that the case. And, and it, it's interesting to stand back now and look at, 
know, Northrop, when they took back their, you know, their bid or their potential bid on uh, the trainer because of some of the dynamics there. Um, Northrop, since I brought them up, they had a, another outstanding quarter, largely driven by their space business. I mean, the growth in their space drivenness business, a lot of that having to do with classified, a lot of that having to do with GBSD, presumably, um, was just humongous. You know, year over year over year in their in the second quarter, they had 34, 34% growth in space and year to date, 32%. And that really kind of drove the, the rest of the quarter for them. Um, surprisingly general dynamics. I think a lot of people were <clears throat> given the budget dynamics, um, expecting combat systems, uh, at GD to not perform very well, but they had 8%, 8, a little over 8% growth year on year. Um, and then the Raytheon defense businesses, right? So the, the, the legacy RTN businesses, um, had mid, you know, mid single digit growth. So kind of across the group, broadly, uh, the companies, uh, reported, you know, decent numbers, Decent growth, reasonable cash flow, but the, but the probably the biggest surprise was the the fixed price development charge that that Lockheed took. Sash, walk us through uh, the uh, Babcock uh, certainly and any other uh, defense news flow that caught your interest. I, I thought it was uh, interesting that there's so many earnings coming out that actually you know you you begin to wonder whether or not the companies are all reporting at exactly the same time for mutual cover so that you know nobody notices. Uh, our, our, our challenges. But anyway, that might be a little bit of a cynical observation on my part as somebody who used to have to do, you know, seven earning stories in a day. I, I, I find it distressingly cynical and therefore I suspect you're absolutely right. Um, I, I would not normally subscribe to that, but I have to say that if as a medium-sized European defense company, you're going to report a, a two billion loss uh, two billion sterling, which is still more or less a real currency, um, then this was the week to do it because nobody pretty much noticed. Uh, and Babcock, um, Babcock's got new management, uh, the utterly new management. Interestingly, only two of the twelve people on the executive board have been there, uh, have been on uh, the board in the, in that role for, for longer than twelve months. Uh, the uh, the new chief executive, David Lockwood, uh, formerly at, Co- at Cobham, um, at David Mellers, formerly also at Cobham, and before that at Kinetic. They are a formidable uh, management team, and they have really gone through Babcock's um, accounts, its programs, its contracts with a series of fine-tooth combs, um, and they've thrown the kitchen sink at it. Um, the two billion loss was, I mean, you, you rightly point out, you know, Type 31 didn't even really get a look in in the um, statement, except in as much as they said, you know, they're really confident about exports, which is always a fascinating comment to make because that, you know, that sort of lays you open to disappointment. But what Babcock have really done is they have looked at some old acquisitions, which were still in the books. Uh, with a lot of goodwill that is simply not uh, not justified. Um, in particular, Avinci's, which was a helicopter services business they bought nearly a decade ago. When they bought it, the expectation, um, certainly hope, was that the civil oil and gas business would uh, you know, grow very, very rapidly indeed. Actually, first of all, it didn't because oil entered a downturn. Uh, secondly, it didn't because the Super Puma um, uh, crash meant that all the heavy helicopters pretty much were grounded for multi-year period of time. And then any advantage that there was just got competed away. So they wrote off all of the acquired goodwill associated with, with that and a hell of a lot more associated with the defence support group that they bought from the UK MOD. Again, because the 
assumptions that were made at the time of the acquisition simply haven't haven't worked out. Brutal stuff, um, but you know I think absolutely the right thing to do. Um, Babcock has now got to sort of recover and become a normal company again. Um, I think the management team are the right team to do that, but it's going to take some. You know, it, people are pretty scarred after after a series of write downs like that. Compare this with BA Systems, which let's face it has at times been the UK MOD's least favourite defence company um, and has had its own uh, share of trouble over the decades. BA came out with an unbelievably boring uh, set of results, boring in the sense that they just delivered. In fact, they delivered a bit more. Uh, they're, they're doing really well on cash flow. They're going to do another share, buy, you know, share buyback again. Um, BA seems to have turned the corner. And in doing so, they've greatly reduced their exposure to Saudi Arabia. It's about 13% of the business. Uh, there was a time, decade and a half back, when it was all of the business in terms of profits. Um, uh, you know, that's performing well. The stock that promises but has yet to deliver is Leonardo. Leonardo promises to deliver a ton of cash uh, over the next three to four years or so, but it certainly is not at the moment. And it needs to turn around its civil aerostructures business. We think it's been hampered by not being able to take costs out in Italy. Um, really hard to do that, particularly when your manufacturing plants are quite heavily in the south of Italy. Um, but they think that they can they can really improve things if you believe their cash flow forecast is one of the cheapest stocks we look at. But there's a lot to take on trust there. Uh, Richard, any uh, things that you noticed all these uh, companies uh, putting out? I mean, obviously, we heard about uh, Lockheed and, and the charge uh, they uh, posted. But sort of did anything jump out earnings wide on the defense side uh, of the equation that you thought was interesting? Well, I did notice the uh, Tempest contract that was uh, awarded in the UK for 300 and something million. Uh, that was kind of an interesting development, probably lost in the BAE announcement, along with uh, more talk of discussions between the UK and Japan on future fighter development. So you've got the continued, uh, and I think uh, welcome and promising uh, emphasis on combat aircraft uh, as a business area. And of course, you know, as Sash noticed, that whole 13% Saudi thing, that was something. I mean, you, you talk a few years ago, all of the talk at uh, results time from BAE Systems was trench to Eurofighter for uh, for Saudi. And that, instead, it's given away to uh, Saudi Arabia, a little less important for us. We're focused on the home market, maybe some non-traditional markets like Japan. That to me was, uh, was quite an interesting uh, development. Just before we part, we've got two minutes left. Uh, Ron, do you let, let's just take the last two minutes, and I just want to get everybody's sense very quickly around the horn. If you talk to senior military leaders in the United States, United Kingdom, France, leading military thinkers have been echoing in private what John Hyten said in public, that our approaches are wrong, our capabilities are wrong, and our adversaries know it. You know, there were some people who took exception to General Hyten's comments and saying, oh, you know, he's uh, compromising American deterrence. You know, we talked to Mike Rogers, uh, the former National uh, uh, Security Agency chief and commander of U.S. Cybercom, uh, Cyber Command, and he said, look, I mean, the, the Chinese already know this. Everybody knows this, right? We're just acknowledging what everybody knows. Do you think that this becomes needle moving as we look to 23 and the administration is, is building its national defense and national security strategies, whether the 23 budget could really manifest itself in some major muscle movements, right? I mean, wouldn't you start making that case for change now publicly before you arrive at you know, the end of the year and have to say, wow, there's a whole bunch of legacy capabilities. Do people need to be paying better and closer attention to all this? 
Um, you know, one would think so, right? I mean, if you want to get it, you know, you got to get it into you know, the program objective memoranda and the whole budget process to start moving the muscle, if you will. Uh, and, you know, it's a big organization with a lot of inertia. So, um, you know, starting to kind of push, push what you can, you know, the sooner you do it, uh, the better. Uh, I would imagine that in, you know, um, certain circles, uh, for sure, um, you know, things like this get noticed. And I would imagine in the 23 budget process, they'll have some recognition of this. Um, I would and also I would imagine, sorry to use that, that frame again, um, because I don't know, you know, in, in, in fact, but uh, that uh, the results of this are gonna be continued studied and taken apart in different ways. But, um, you know, if that is the reality, ultimately the, you know, the DOD will react to it. Um, you know, they are a reasonably dynamic organization, right? And I would expect it to get reflected in future budgets um, at some point. It's just, if you're asking exactly when and what time frame, that's always hard to say, but the sooner the better, but it is a gigantic organization. And like any big organization, you know, it just doesn't move on a, on a pin. Um, Sash, let me bring you into this. Uh, ben Wallace, the British Defense Secretary, uh, is a very, very thoughtful, very strategically minded leader. We saw a reflection of that in the British Defense Reviews. Um, you know, do, do, is, is there a sense among British investors and the intelligentsia that we're poised and primed for what could be actually more tectonic changes in how we prosecute warfare, given how adversaries are changing their capability sets? Very, very little because the UK, I mean, UK, you know, investor base and um, commentary are pretty myopic and focused on the UK's own problems and challenges, some of which are entirely self-inflicted. Uh, but I think the, you know, the interesting thing is, that, I mean, I, I, I would take issue with you. I don't actually think that our, our using that in the sort of the, the, the broadest collective term, um, but actually what I really mean is your tactics are wrong. The problem is that they've been right for too long and we've forgotten that um, our enemies also have a, have a go in all this. And they, of course, they've learned from experience or, and in fact, they've learned from our experience, your experience, because that's the, that's the right way to do things. Um, but I've been very struck for years by the degree to which, um, uh, you know, NATO, but particularly uh, the US, UK has got incredibly lazy about, um, we always assume we have a superiority. We always assume that we have perfect communications, absolutely immaculate communications. We sit in very large headquarters with huge numbers of screens. We have this amazing God's eye view of what's going on. We never think what would happen if somebody came along and messed it up. Having been uh, seen military operations, experienced military operations, where you have no communications whatsoever and you have to make it up, fascinating when you see the French, they still use Morse code for long range communications because Morse gets through where video hasn't got a prayer. Um, you know, I, I think that we, we need to get used to the fact that um, a near peer adversary is exactly that. They're going to give at least as good as they get and where, when we're extended, wherever it is, whether it's um, up in the Arctic, the North Cape, um, uh, Eastern Europe or the Pacific, then it's, life is just going to be far harder for us than what's actually been 20 years of 30 years of very easy wars. Yeah, I want, I want to go to Richard in just a second. I'll give you a chance to talk about Ajax it's becoming quite a big story, isn't it? Or a bigger story. It's on the cusp. Um, it's either going to be fixed or it's going to be cancelled. 
me, I think it's going to be cancelled. When you have a when you have a vehicle which even in trials is injuring the crews who are in it, um, that suggests that the quality of build is unacceptable. That suggests it's a dog. General Dynamics does not agree with this. Good luck, sort it because it, it you know it should be their job. If they don't, then you know they shouldn't set foot in this country again. Personally, Richard, any closing thoughts? Yeah, you know, I think this might be the not exactly the wrong time to have this conversation, but just not a terribly meaningful one because we've got a really high defense budget with a great deal of political support. You know, what happened, as we've discussed before, is that, you know, the Biden administration put forth a, an R&D heavy budget, rather transformational in its own way. And predictably, Congress stepped up to the plate and also inserted plenty of cash for legacy systems, some fresh, exciting, important new programs for the Asia-Pacific, like uh, the A-10 fleet. You know, I'm not saying it should be retired, but come on, that was predictable and utterly irrelevant in Asia-Pacific uh, planning. Now, what happens if the budget turns down? This dynamic of inserting cash for legacy systems while simultaneously emphasizing breakthrough capabilities and transformational systems, who's going to win? And in a couple of years, you know, history tells us there probably will be some kind of downturn in defense precipitated by who knows what, and who's going to win then? That's going to be a really interesting moment. Guys, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Have a great week and look forward to having you guys back on again next week. Thanks a lot. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, always very enjoyable, Vago. Thank you. Yeah, really enjoyed this a lot. Thank you, Vago. Always a pleasure, guys. Thanks again. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.